we open the Holy Scriptures to 1 Samuel, chapter 16. I'm going to read a portion of the history, the early life of David. This chapter follows chapter on David's defeat of Goliath. Records the history of David's early interactions in service to Saul. And in the course of the sermon, we'll see that this history is most relevant to our consideration of the sixth commandment. So let us read the entire chapter, 1 Samuel 18. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, and gave it to David, and his garments, even to his sword, and to his bow, and to his girdle. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass, as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Merab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And David said unto Saul, Who am I, 
And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it came to pass at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given unto Adriel the Mehoathite to wife. And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in the one of the twain. And Saul commanded his servants, saying, Commune with David secretly, and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. Now therefore be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spake those words in the ears of David. And David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, On this manner spake David. And Saul said, Thus shall ye say to David, The king desireth not any dowry but an hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines two hundred men. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, to wife. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass, after they went forth, that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. We end our reading of the scriptures at that point. The basis of this passage and the entire word of God We consider Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism explaining to us the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Beginning with question 105. What doth God require in the sixth commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor, by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore, also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he accounts all these as murder. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards him, 
and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies. The psalmist, in extolling God's word in Psalm 119, verse 96, says, Thy commandment is exceeding broad. That reality applies to all ten of the commandments of the Decalogue, but at first glance it can be hidden a bit, the breadth of the commandment that is, can be hidden by the simple direct formulation of each commandment. We come to the sixth, thou shalt not kill. Four simple words. We understand what they mean. We understand what the fourth commandment forbids, but we must also understand that that commandment is exceeding broad. There is breadth and there is depth to those words. One of the reasons the Ten Commandments are put in this simple form and stated in the negative, we heard last Sunday night, when we heard a word about the spiritual maturing of the church, From the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people were still, from a spiritual perspective, children. And so they needed such simple, straightforward, direct, concrete commandments placed in the negative. Don't do this. But even more so, now that we as God's people have come to spiritual maturity, we understand there's a lot more than simply a prohibition of one particular act. This commandment is exceeding broad. Sixth commandment forbids killing someone, taking life, but that's not all. It forbids doing harm. And yet more, it calls us to love the neighbor, to prevent his harm as much as in us lies, to do good to him. And yet even more than that, to do good to our enemies. A commandment that is exceeding broad, and because of its exceeding breadth, we also see that the breaking of this commandment is exceeding broad. And that's something, too, that a sermon on commandment is meant to do. It's to show us our sin. We need that. That's healthy. Because we have to see our sin so that we may flee to the cross, see the Christ who alone is salvation from sin, and then go from that cross by the power of God's grace and His Spirit to obey this law of thankfulness to him. And that's our purpose this morning. Call your attention to the sixth commandment. We're going to look at it in connection with 1 Samuel 18, which is very relevant. It's instructive by way of illustration, because in the interactions of the Bible characters in this chapter, Saul and David especially, we see illustrated for us the breadth of this commandment. We will see the roots of murder and how those roots of murder bring forth fruit of actual murder in the case of Saul. And as we go through that history, we'll see ourselves too. So let's look at the sixth commandment under the theme, God's commandment concerning murder. We'll look first at its forms, the forms of murder. Secondly, its roots that which is under the surface in the heart from which the activity of murder springs. And then finally, it's a remedy, the only remedy. It's forms. 
Unless we understand that murder has many forms, we will only have a surface level understanding of what this commandment is talking about. That was the case with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, which directed that error of, was directed to the error of the people of that day. The Pharisees thought they were guiltless. They read the sixth commandment. I haven't shed blood. I'm good. Jesus says, oh no. The heart from which come murderous thoughts, words, as well as deeds. The commandment is exceeding broad, and we're going to see the breadth of the forms of murder now, beginning with the most direct. Murder, the act of murder, what is it? Let's have a definition and unpack it. Murder is the deliberate and unlawful Inflicting of harm or taking of God-given life from another person. Murder is the deliberate, unlawful inflicting of harm or taking of the God-given life of a person. That's what question and answer 150 is getting at. I'm sorry, 105. What doth God require in the sixth commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, there is many forms we'll look at, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor. Hurting or killing. Thou shalt not kill, the commandment says. That forbids all violence that would wound the neighbor's body or destroy his life. This is the sin of Cain. The sin that Cain committed with his own hands when he rose up against his brother and slew him in the field. It's equally the sin of David when he slew Uriah the Hittite, not with his own hands, but with the sword of the Ammonite. And it's the sin that Saul, time and time again, conspired to commit against David in 1 Samuel 18, when he conspired to get David killed by a Philistine sword. Murder, in its grossest form, is the actual spilling of blood, taking your neighbor's life. Whether it's by your hand or by another hand, makes no difference. Not only spilling of blood, but inflicting of harm. Whether that harm is upon the body or upon the soul. A person isn't just a body. A person has a soul. We don't just have biological life, we have our inner life. And the infliction of harm upon a person, whether body or soul, heart, mind, murder, murder. Now, in unpacking the definition, we need to see also that murder is heinous and evil in God's eyes because it takes life. God-given life. Or inflicts harm on God-given life. God created life, and life is a beautiful creation of God over which God alone has sovereign rights. And whenever a man, whenever one of us designs to harm another person, to inflict harm upon their life, or even to take that life, we are playing God. God alone gives and takes life. At his appointed time, God alone has that authority. Murder at heart is an act of hateful rebellion against God as the creator and giver of life. Think about that. As we'll see in a moment, murder has many forms. It's not just spilling blood, but it's any deliberate attack upon another person to harm them. When we do that, we're expressing hatred against God 
who made that person gave them their life. Murder damages and destroys life which God has given. And thus it's opposed to the very nature of God. That's why Psalm 11 says that God's soul hates the one who loves violence. It is opposed to the very nature of God as the creator and giver of life. God alone has the right to take a life. Think of God's words in Deuteronomy 32 verse 39. Where God says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. And that's God's right. God kills, God makes alive, but when God kills, He does not murder. For when God takes life, it is just. It is in harmony with His holiness. It is according to His plan. It is in harmony with His sovereign right as the Creator. And never does God's killing or taking of a life arise from sinful passions of the heart, such as envy or the like. That's the case with man. Man takes hold of his neighbor to hurt him or to slay him. It rises from the wicked depravity of his own heart. Not so with God. God gives life. God takes life. But God does not murder. Where does murder come from? Well, Jesus told us in John 8, did he not? Who was the murderer in the beginning? Satan. Satan. There's murder's beginning. And fallen man, who apart from grace bears the image of Satan, is a murderer like his father. And that's our old man too. That's our sinful flesh. And that's what this commandment exposes to us, how deeply ingrained into our flesh is murder. So murder... Is the harming or taking of life. Life which is God-given. In the third place, let's notice the object of murder. In our definition, murder is done against a person. And that's important. A person. Whether that person is another person or yourself. Animals can't be murdered. They're living things. But they are on a different tier, a different level than the human person which God has given a certain dignity as a moral, rational creature. Now, that doesn't mean we can just indiscriminately slaughter animals or abuse creation. No, we are called to be good stewards. But God has given the animal into human hands to use wisely according to the principles of Scripture, to use for food. can't murder an animal, but a person, a human being, is different. God has given a special kind of life to the human person. We are called to respect that God-given life. That means not hurting ourselves either. God not only gave your neighbor his life, but gave you your life. We mustn't hate our own life, despise ourselves. That can be a real issue. We don't like the way God made us. We're unhappy with the gifts that he gave us. We want another gift. Or we look at the neighbor, something he or she has, or the way he or she has been made, and we envy that, and it fosters a, a dislike for ourselves. No. The life God gave us, he gave it. 
He created us. We must not hurt or despise ourselves. Therefore, we must not recklessly endanger our own life. Our own life is not ours. It's not in our hands any more than our neighbor's life belongs to us. It belongs to God, who is the creator and the giver of life. And we must use our life, protect our life for his glory. That touches upon the barbaric practice of abortion in our day. We know it's wrong, we know it's evil, but here we see how bad it is. Taking of God-given life. It doesn't matter how old a person is. It's a God-given life. And all of the absurd arguments used in our society to justify this barbaric practice only reveal the depth of man's depravity and his willful blindness. We must be cautioned as we live in the midst of a death-loving world that does not respect life. God is the giver and the creator of life. Must be respected. And in that we honor him. But now, before we move on, there's a couple of qualifications in our definition. Remember, murder is the deliberate and unlawful inflicting of harm or the taking of the God-given life of a person. Deliberate and unlawful are two qualifying words. Unlawful. That means there are certain circumstances in which there is a lawful taking of life. And the Catechism sets before us one of the main instances where it is lawful. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. God has invested, according to Romans 13, the sword power with the state. The state has the calling and the right to preserve good order and decency to punish crime. And not only has the right, but the calling from God to execute murderers in order to prevent murder. The state must use the sword, not excessively, not arbitrarily, always in harmony with the principles of justice in God's word, but the state must also not let the sword fall into disuse. It is to be used to punish crime and to prevent murder. That's a legitimate use of the sword. Other legitimate uses of the sword, law enforcement, the agents of the state who uphold the law have the right to use force against those who resist them. Even war, the state has the right to go to war to protect its own citizens and territory against aggressors. You see that in 1 Samuel 18, which speaks of much fighting and killing of the Philistines. And that was just and right. David and the armies of Israel were defending the people of God against an aggressor that hated them and hated their God. Self-defense. God calls us to love our neighbor. That means protecting the neighbor who is in danger, the family member who is weak or vulnerable. And if someone is threatening their life, an intruder in the house, it is not a violation of the sixth commandment to take action against them and even to kill them. To protect your family. That's showing love to the neighbor. Second qualification is deliberate. Murder is deliberate killing or harming. That means not every killing is murder. Intention matters. Was it done purposely? And the Old Testament scriptures recognize this distinction. Think of the the cities of refuge. 
Deuteronomy 19 talks about the establishment of certain cities of refuge where manslayers, those who accidentally killed their neighbor, could flee and find refuge. Deuteronomy 19 verse 5 gives an example of a workplace accident where two men are cutting wood and the axe head flies off of one of the axes and hits the other man and he dies. The scriptures recognize it's not murder. Now, when there is neglect or carelessness involved, there is a greater weight of responsibility upon one who inflicted the harm. But that distinction is important. Murder is deliberate, deliberate. Now, having unpacked the definition, let's look at a couple more forms of murder that the Catechism lays out before us. And one of them is murder with the mind or mental murder. Striking, isn't it? That the Catechism begins that neither in thoughts, thoughts, I hurt or kill the neighbor. You might ask, how, how can you hurt someone with your thoughts? It goes against the thinking of our day. People will say, I can think whatever I want. I can believe whatever I want. As long as I don't act on those thoughts, it doesn't hurt anyone. Not the case. God sees them. Thoughts of evil toward the neighbor, God accounts as murder. Thoughts that desire or delight in the neighbor's hurt, wishing or imagining ill, mental murder. Besides, our thinking is the birthplace of action. Our thoughts don't just sit there like the contents of a tin can, having no effect on whatever is outside of us. No, thoughts shape and inform our attitudes, speech, and actions towards others. Here we're seeing the breadth of the sixth commandment. It reaches to our minds as well, how we think about others. The positive side of the sixth commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves, to seek their good. First Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Love thinketh no evil. Love is manifest not only in our outward actions, but our thoughts. Our thoughts. And this brings us to an important application in our day. And it has to do with the entertainment of our death-obsessed and murder-glutted culture. So much of the movies produced in our day, so much of the entertainment glorifies, glamorizes violence. The problem is not merely that it depicts violence. You understand that a believer may exercise sanctified judgment there. He may watch a documentary on World War II where some violence is depicted. He must exercise sanctified judgment as to whether that will have a harmful effect on him or not. There is some Christian liberty there. But so much of the products of our culture, the movies, the games, and so many other things don't simply depict in order to inform, but glamorize and promote. Those things are designed to draw out the baser lusts that simmer in our human nature. They are designed to foster a fascination with the dark side of man. 
just to name a few things that have been a sensation in our country in recent years. Movies such as Fifty Shades of Grey. Or television programs like Game of Thrones, where perhaps in the workplace you've heard people talking about it, and they look at you with a gaping open jaw if you say you haven't watched it. Things which glamorize abuse. A TV series which has as one of its goals to blur the lines between good and evil, and which relishes in depicting horrible violence. Understand, those things are not things that the Christian ought to entertain himself with, to fill his mind with. In our sinful nature, we have murder simmering within our hearts. That's our sinful nature. And things such as this are like throwing fuel on the fire. They are designed by wicked men to draw out those base lusts that simmer in man's fallen nature. We must beware, beloved, Beware about what we entertain ourselves with, the kind of cultural products we use because so many of them, especially in the media of films and games and the like, glamorize murder. Let the positive of the application be stated in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 verse 8. It can't be stated any better than this. Brethren, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, good report, virtue, praise, think, think on those things. That's what our minds should be occupied with. That's the antidote to murder of the mind. But the Catechism goes on to talk about our words, doesn't it? Because perhaps the most well-used weapon of murder is our words, verbal murder. When words are weaponized, they can be so very destructive. The old sing-song, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that's blatantly false. Words, in fact, can hurt you far more than sticks or stones. Ask a little child that's been repeatedly picked on at school. Someone who has been wounded by the sharp words of a loved one. It can often be worse than a stick or stone. Words. We must take care with our words. Psalm 64 verse 3 speaks of words as weapons. Men wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows even bitter words. And so we have to think about it that way. The sixth commandment calls us to think about how we use our tongues to be watchful. Everywhere we go, this tongue is like carrying a razor-sharp sword. And all of our words, every word, has the potential to be an arrow that we aim at someone to hurt them. And our sinful hearts are ever so inclined, are they not, to be quick to the draw when it comes to shooting a bitter word or swinging the tongue to cut a neighbor. The law searches us. Are we verbal murderers? 
Children, a word for you. When you say an unkind word to your brother or your sister, it might seem like a small thing, but it's not. This is what God says it is. You're hurting them. You're murdering them. That's what God says. Just as much as if you hit them. There's someone at school you make fun of. You like, you know, make fun of them, embarrass them, mock them. It's fun to do that. Don't say it's just joking. It's not. God sees the heart, and this is what God says it is. Murder. Murder. No small thing. Ah, but this is for adults too. This is an application for all of us because we never grow out of this, do we? Adults just find more refined ways of murdering each other. More refined ways of putting each other down. Sixth commandment calls us, take heed to yourself and the use of your words. Don't be careless with your tongue. Something that is so dangerous requires such care. And what other part of the body does the Bible say things like this about? The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. That's James 3. If you're carrying a canister of deadly poison, you're going to be very careful with it. A fire, you're going to be very careful with it. Let us be that careful with our tongues. That we not engage in casual, verbal murder. Those are the forms, the forms of murder. But now let's go deeper and see the roots. The roots. Seeing that the sixth commandment is exceeding broad. Broad, it has many, many forms. There's murder indeed which is laying hands on another person or ourselves to inflict injury or even to take life. There is murder of the mind with thoughts, wishing, desiring, delighting in ill against the neighbor or finding pleasure in the violation of the sixth commandment in the entertainment that we consume. There's verbal murder, using our tongues as a sword to slash and cut, our words as arrows to pierce and to hurt. There's all of these forms of murder, but where do they come from? There's great breadth, but there's also great depth. The sixth commandment is exceeding deep, and the word of God and the catechism which summarizes it will have us identify those roots of murder. Roots which go down deep into our sinful hearts. And those roots are what nourish and bring forth the forms of murder that we see. The activities, the deeds, the words, the thoughts. They come from the heart. The heart. And this is so very important. Because unless the heart is addressed, we won't turn from sin. Dandelions are starting to sprout outside. Some of you children maybe like to pick them and pop the heads off. It doesn't do anything. That dandelion's going to grow right back. The only way to get rid of it out of your lawn is to rip the whole thing up by the root. And so it is with our sin. If we were to stop here, having identified the forms of murder and say, don't hurt someone, don't hit someone, don't say mean things to someone, don't think about bad things, and leave it there, It's like popping the heads off of dandelions. It's not going to do anything. We have to get at the root. The root. And that's where the catechism leads us next in question and answer 106. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. That breadth. No. 
The depth also, in forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge. There's a list of the main roots of murder. There's more, but these are the main ones. Envy, hatred, anger, desire for revenge. And God accounts all of these as murder. Not merely because eventually they grow and produce an outward act of murder, but God views them as murder. That's the seriousness. And so now we need to look at the heart that stands behind behavior. Envy. You know what envy is? It's that resentment you feel, that ill will towards your neighbor when you look at them and you see the neighbor has something I want. That bigger house. That nice car. That spouse. Whatever it may be. I want it. I don't have it. They have it. And the sinful response is, I start to have an ill will towards that neighbor. The fact that they have what I want makes me dislike them. I begin even to hate my neighbor because of what he has. And I I want to see him hurt. Or I want to see him lose that thing that I want. Envy. Envy which can consume a person. Proverbs 14 verse 30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Eats away at us. And that is a root that leads to murder and in God's eyes is itself murder. Understand that envy. Really an expression of hatred against God too. I want that. I want to be like her. Whatever it may be. But God has not given it to me. God has not made me like that person. And I will not be satisfied. It's rebellion against the providence of God himself. Envy. Hatred, the catechism mentions. Hatred, which is the complete opposite of love. Love seeks to do good to its object, to bless, to build up. And love delights in seeing good done to the one that is the object of love. Hatred is the opposite. Hatred hatred is despising the neighbor for who they are, despising their person such that you desire to see harm befall them. Whether it's by your own hand or by the hand of another, you want to see them cut down, removed from their place in life. That's hatred or enmity. You see very very well how that kind of hatred is a root of murder. It is murder and it grows and it blossoms into all sorts of acts of murder. If you hate someone, you're going to be thinking evil thoughts about them. You're going to speak to them in a certain way. You may even take action against them. Hatred leads to the acts of murder. Anger, the catechism says, whether it's a burst of passion in a moment or a simmering resentment against someone, anger is displeasure at someone because of a perceived wrong. And isn't it true that 
usually we like to think our anger is righteous. I've been wronged, and therefore I have a right to be upset. And that quickly leads to this. I have been wronged, and therefore I have a right to think evil of that person. I have a a right to treat that person in a different way. I have the right even to get back at that person. That's unrighteous anger. And that's usually what our anger is. Yes, there are times when we can be righteously angry. How do we distinguish righteous and unrighteous anger? Well, we ask, who's the focus? Who's the focus? And we'll find that usually anger is focused on me. When I'm mad, I'm mad because I didn't get my way, or somebody got in my way, or somebody did something that I didn't want them to do. It's me. My desires have been thwarted. That's unrighteous anger. And anger so quickly leads to murderous attitudes, words, gestures, and the rest. And leads to number four, vengefulness, the desire to get even. They've done me wrong, and I want to get them back. I'm going to be judge. I'm going to execute the penalty that I think they deserve. And there again is murder playing the part of God. There's only one judge. That's God. It's in his hand. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We must leave it there. These, these are the roots. These are the roots that the catechism sets before us. And we must understand that. Where does murder come from? Where does the broad spectrum of harm that man inflicts upon fellow man, where does it come from? It comes from these roots which are deep in the soil of the sinful heart. Confronted here with our own nature, aren't we? That's a humbling thing. We all have a vicious and violent monster inside of us that bursts out in so many ways. The way we treat each other. Now we come to 1 Samuel 18. Here's where I want to bring in this history. This history is instructive because it illustrates for us how these roots of murder grow and bring forth the fruit of murderous acts. And we see that so very clearly in the interactions between Saul and David. We see how the murder plant grows from the roots of envy, hatred, anger, and vengefulness. All of which we can find in this history. So turning to 1 Samuel 18. This history takes place after David's victory over Goliath. Which, by the way, was a lawful killing in defense of God's people against that uncircumcised Philistine who was coming to conquer their territory and to enslave God's people. That was a legitimate use of the sword by the God-instituted authority in Israel. But after David's slaying of Goliath, Saul was most impressed with him and took David into his service. That's what we read about in the first verses of 1 Samuel 18. And Saul took such a liking to this young man that he even put David in a position of authority. He put him as a captain over his men of war. He didn't let David go home to his father's house anymore. Saul wanted David with him. And David, David was what any king would want in a captain. Because the Lord was with David. David was faithful. 
How many times does the chapter tell us David behaved himself wisely? And thus he was accepted by all of the king's service, servants and well-beloved in the sight of the people of Israel and of Judah. Even the king's own son, Jonathan, became David's fast friend. And David was successful on the battlefield as a defender of God's people. So successful that the people begin to sing his praises. Verses 6 and 7. And it came to pass, as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his tens thousands. Oh, that irked King Saul, didn't it? Verse 8. And Saul was very wroth, and he, and, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. What can he have more but the kingdom? Saul wasn't upset that they honored David. He was angry that they honored David more than him. I'm the king. I deserve honor. Wrath, anger, envy. Envy of that honor that was given to David, which he wanted for himself and proudly thought he deserved. There are the roots of murder See them in Saul's heart there. That jealousy, how quickly it led to murder. Saul felt threatened by David. What's next? Is he going to take the kingdom? The whole kingdom? Verse 9 says, Saul eyed David from that day forward. He watched him with an evil, envious eye, looking for opportunity. And that envy moved Saul to try to kill David. We go on to read that, that while David ministered to Saul, playing his harp, perhaps singing, Saul grasps that javelin and hurls that javelin at David with the deliberate goal in mind to pin David to the wall with it. That envy, that anger, had developed into hatred of David's person, a desire to see David removed from his life. And the act of murder hurling that javelin at David. God thwarted Saul's designs. David evaded the javelin. By the way, throughout all of this, you see how David continues to behave himself wisely and in obedience to the sixth commandment and that he doesn't lash out. He doesn't seek to take revenge on Saul. Well, Saul isn't finished. The more Israel loved David, the more Saul hated him. And you see Saul murdering David in his mind, in his thoughts, as he schemes, as he plots, looking for some way to be rid of David. And he even stoops so low as to bring his daughters into it, to use his Daughters 
First he tries Merab and then Michael to use them as a tool to get rid of David. First he tries to give Merab to David. He says to David, be valiant for me and I'll give you my daughter and you'll be my son-in-law. And his plot was, if I can get David to go out there and really throw himself into battle against the Philistines, maybe he'll get killed. He tries the same thing with Michael later, trying to get David killed on the edge of a Philistine sword. And it all comes down to verse 29 at the end of the chapter, and Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually, continually, continual hatred and enmity which grew out of Saul's heart. There, the Bible illustrates for us what the Catechism teaches us. How The poisonous fruits of the acts of murder grow out of those roots in the heart. And thus the scripture shows us our hearts. Can you see yourself? Can you see yourself mirrored in Saul? That's the question you must consider and I must consider. Is there someone you despise? Simply because... They have something that you want, or they're better at something than you are, or they receive more recognition than you do for something, and that just irks you. Does it anger you to see someone prosper? Would you love to see someone fall? Does envy lurk in your heart? Do you hold on to anger against a family member or a church member? Do you nurse a grudge? Is there someone in the sanctuary today that you don't want to talk to afterwards because you really don't like them and would rather have them gone? You might not throw a javelin at them, but you're doing it already in your heart. You may be doing it with your eyes. You may be doing it with your words when you're talking to others. You may be doing it with the cold shoulder and the avoidance. We might not take a javelin in hand, but God sees it for what it is. You and I must search our hearts. We are more like Saul than we would like to admit. Because in our sinful nature is that vicious, violent monster. So, where do we look for help? How do we heed the sixth commandment which says thou shalt not kill and the positive side of which is love thy neighbor as thyself. When when our sinful nature is unmasked and we see the monster within, where do we look for help? How do we overcome the murderous impulses of the human heart? Who can save us from ourselves? We can't. The state can't. The sword can only bridle the outward acts of The sword of the state can never address the roots of murder. Where do we look? God's grace. God's grace. God's saving grace is the only remedy. God's saving grace in Jesus Christ, through the cross of Christ, there is the one remedy. There's our help. There is salvation. Jesus saves us from ourselves.
Murderers ought to be executed, and you and I, as violators of the sixth commandment, are worthy of the execution of the just God. We're worthy to perish under the sword of God's justice. And yet, in pure grace, what did God do for his people whom he chose and gave to his son? What did he do for us? He gave his son into this world full of murder to save us. And we hated him. We murdered him. He was taken with wicked hands and crucified and slain. He suffered the murderous hatred, envy, anger, and malice of men. And yet he didn't return it in kind. When he was struck with word or hand, he turned the other cheek. He did not seek revenge. He went willingly and obediently to the death of the cross for your sake and mine. And now, when we come to the last question and answer of Lord's Day 40, let's see that first of all, answer 107 describes Jesus Christ. He loved his neighbor as himself. He showed patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards us. He gave his life to prevent our hurt as much as in him lies. And he did us eternal good, even when we were yet his enemies. The cross, there's the remedy. The cross and the crucified Christ. On that cross, Jesus Christ willingly took upon himself the sword of divine justice. He bore our death sentence. He carried it away. He broke the power of sin and death. He obtained for us the forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of all of our murders. Thought, word, and deed. He fulfilled the law of love. So that he might impute that righteousness to us and clothe us in his white robes. And not only that, he merited and obtained for us life everlasting renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that the risen Christ now imparts to us that life. So that we're new creatures in him. And there's hope. There's hope of change. Even in this life. We have that old man of sin, that monster within. But that's not all we are anymore. We are new creatures in Christ. With new life. And now our hatred is to be directed to that monster within. Rather than killing each other, let us kill the monster. By the power of the word of God. We hate our old man. Want to slay him and his deeds rather than one another. Salvation. Salvation. From our own murderous selves. is found in the cross of Christ. And that cross, that grace is fruitful. And that's now what answer 170 is, is it describes the positive calling of the sixth commandment, how we are to walk in love toward our neighbor. That's the fruit of the cross. That's what the Holy Spirit works in us. Those who are in Christ, we begin already now to reflect the love of God for us. That love of God in Christ, which is shed abroad in our hearts, shows itself now in our love for one another. Not only putting away murder, but uprooting its roots. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. Seeking his good. Instead of envy, hatred, anger, and vengefulness, 
patience, peace, meekness, and mercy. Instead of desiring and delighting in another's hurt, we seek to prevent it as much as in us lies and delight to do good to the neighbor, our closest neighbors, families, friends, our fellow saints, and all who cross our path. Yes, even our enemies, we seek to do them good. Instead of wanting to pin them to the wall with a javelin, the javelin of our words, we want to win them with kindness. That's Christ-likeness. That's not weakness. That's Christ-likeness. Power of a new life turns from murder, turns to God in love and to the neighbor in love. The power is the grace of God and the cross of Christ. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. How we have been forgiven so much. And if you understand that, can you hold a grudge against your fellow believer anymore? If you have been forgiven that much, can you then grab hold of your brother or sister's neck and say, pay up? If you've been forgiven, forgive as you have been forgiven. God has turned his wrath from us and shown us all patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and kindness. And thus, we have the calling to show that as well. If we continue in anger, strife, hate, and bitter words, we might congratulate ourselves and say our our cause is just. We have a right to be angry. We have a right to throw bitter words at that person. Something's dreadfully wrong if that's our attitude. No, Christ-likeness, the mind of Christ, patience, peace, meekness, mercy, kindness to all, even the enemy, even the enemy, for his sake. That's where we always have to come back to. Sometimes we want to murder the neighbor so bad because we don't like him. We've been wronged by him. Back to Christ. Look at Christ. Look at the cross. Look at the love of God for you. Look at what you have been forgiven. Look at the cross. The cross saves. The cross changes. The cross is the power to love the neighbor as ourselves. Look there. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, thy law has unmasked to us our own murderous nature. How prone we are to hate thee and to hate the neighbor. How prone we are to use our thoughts, words, deeds, and gestures to harm rather than to bless and build up. Forgive us, Father. And drive us to the cross. Work by the power of that cross so that we may love our neighbors as ourselves. Put away murder in all of its forms. Tearing it up by the root. And instead living by thy grace, showing Christ-like patience, peace, meekness, kindness to one another. Pardon graciously our sins, encourage us by the gospel, and strengthen us to go forward in thankful obedience. Amen.